You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, Episode 6. Today, we are talking to Jill Lewis. Ha, where do I even start with Jill? Jill is a licensed clinical social worker. She is a certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor and a certified group psychotherapist. She has a group practice in Atlanta, and they specialize in eating disorders and some other things like anxiety, depression, borderline personality disorder, family dynamics, et cetera. Jill works relationally. We're going to talk a little bit about that later. And the practice offers individual, couples, family, and group therapy. Jill also supervises other clinicians, and we'll talk a bit about that later as well. Jill is an active member of the American Group Psychotherapy Association, where she serves as the private practice co-chair. She is also involved in the Atlanta Group Psychotherapy Society, where she is the social chair and is an active member of the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. That is IADEP, y'all. So understanding that I will never introduce Jill sufficiently, let's jump right into it. I'm really excited to have this conversation because we'll talk a lot about relationships. That's your thing. And relationships have to do with everything, as you know, especially connected to eating disorders. Um, Sometimes I like to call eating disorders a disease of isolation because part of the recovery process is breaking out of that sort of like lonely place that the eating disorder almost banishes its prisoner to, not to be melodramatic, but pretty true. Absolutely. And um, so recovery is, is about a meal plan and challenging the food police. But when you get further into the crux of the eating disorders, relationships are basically everything. Correct. That is, I would fully agree with that statement. Yeah. So you're an analytic therapist. You practice relationally. You do long-term dynamic work. So first of all, what does relational work actually look like? Sure. Um, So our practice and the way that I've trained is really twofold. It's psychodynamically and relationally. So I'll explain the relational part and and happily explain the dynamic part too. But we, we just spoke about how we enter we're in relationships all the time, right? Our primary relationships when we're born, whether with our parents or then siblings and then peers and then potentially intimate relationships. Even when we walk across the street and like we bump into a neighbor, like we have a brief interaction and like they're all a form of relationships. And what happens specifically with eating disorders and and other traumatic uh, mental illnesses is people do isolate and withdraw because they have a fear of showing up in the relationships in a way of like, will they be accepted? Will they be seen? And so what we do in our practice is we recognize that the therapeutic relationship is a parallel process to relationships outside. So if you show up in my office, not talking or very withdrawn or very high and very low and all over the place, I guarantee that is how you're showing up in the world. And so, I mean, nothing secret therapy is a microcosm for life. So we, we let the clients know our reactions and our feelings around their shared experiences. I had a client about a month or two ago who's like, I would say relatively even keeled. And she came in, I mean, I don't know, I wouldn't say manic, but very, very hyper. And I said, 
hey, I'm feeling kind of disconnected from you today because you feel very hyper and just very all over the place and it feels really chaotic. And she's like, oh my God, I just had three cups of coffee and I'm like all spazzed out on caffeine. But she was like, my friend said the same thing to me that she like like was having a hard time talking with me. And so we really talked about the experience of what happens when she reached those, those states, what it feels like for me, what it feels like for her peers, and really discussing the emotional experience that comes up when maybe we've done something that either alienates someone or unconsciously harms someone. Um, so we're constantly sharing our emotional experience and our emotional reaction to a client's behavior. We're not disclosing. I'm not talking about any countertransference or any of my, I'm not disclosing. I'm sharing a relational experience and emotional experience in reaction to our clients. Yeah. So. Just for some people who don't necessarily know exactly what countertransference is, can okay. you explain what that is and how this Absolutely. kind of differs? Absolutely. So um, I'll start with transference. So when our clients come into our office, they typically have feelings towards us. They might view us as a parent or as a sibling or as the mother that they hate. So they are always, all of a sudden they're going to have these activations inside of them because, and they put that on the therapist or, you know, on us. And oftentimes it's how it dictates a lot of therapy goes. So it's their feelings and their reactions towards us as the therapist. The countertransference is the same. It's how we feel as the therapist towards our clients. You know, maybe honestly, we have clients that can be extremely dull and very long-winded and we find ourselves bored and then we kind of maybe go in our head. So we're having like these reactions to our clients. Those we don't usually share. We pay attention to them. We get supervision on them. We talk about them. I mean, if there is a very appropriate experience that we have had that our client would value, we would share that. I'll, I'll give a brief example. I had a client who lives in a larger body. I live in a larger body. And she was feeling very invalidated by some of her peers and just like life. And I shared with her an experience of me living in a larger body where I felt very invalidated and very not seen. It felt very apropos and appropriate to the conversation. And she said it was like, she needed me to say that to her. She needed to know that someone who was a high functioning human could also experience something similar to her. Would I share that with everyone? No, but I, I teased out the situation. So that was you know, counter-transferential and that was a disclosure rather than something relational. Yeah, that makes sense. Are there, is there a way to conceptualize a relational work? Obviously this is like the mean sort of broader point, but are there certain almost focal points of the way of practicing that kind of differ from other therapies? Yeah. I mean, if you ask most therapists, they would, they're not going to tell a client, like, I feel disconnected from you right now, or I'm, I don't feel close to you or the opposite. Like someone shared the other day. And I was like, I am, I'm like in that with you so much. I'm like tearing up. I have goosebumps. Right. So I would say actually it differentiates from most clinicians um, because we're not trained to share our emotional experiences and reaction to clients. I think it gets confusing between disclosure and then relational work. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it feels very different, which is why our practice is successful in our way. And people that want to work that way appreciate it. And then some people want nothing to do with it. And then that's okay. We're not the right fit. Exactly. Yeah. But it's also, you know, going back to your example, the sort of where you got to in terms of how this patient was relating to other people in her life, well, you would never have gotten there if you didn't share your experience of exactly. that in the room. 
Right. It just would have been like, she would have been manic. I would have sat there being like, oh, this kind of feels weird today and would have ignored it sort of, and just like kind of kept going. And we would have, I would have had her talk in her continued manic state. Right. I mean, I, I think some people would might point out, Hey, you seem more hyper today, but pointing out being more hyper versus my emotional reaction brings us to a connected place that we can actually have a deeper conversation, right? We're always talking about like point out the affect. Of course, that is so important, but we're going one step beyond the affect and bringing ourselves into it because these clients are with people all the time. So we're allowing us to access that deeper part. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this, the answer to this is different from more of a general client, but if someone is struggling with an eating disorder or, or most so I would say disordered eating, somebody whose cognitive functioning is all back, et cetera, and they're, let's say, looking for a therapist, how would this sort of therapy help them in particular because of their, I guess, food-related issues? Absolutely. Great question. So I, I still like how you introduced it, that I do think that eating disorders are a disease of isolation. Somewhere along the line, the relationships got fractured for a variety of reasons, right? Like some is intense trauma, well, most is trauma, but, you know, let's say big T, little t trauma, Those are kind of different scales of how we would rate trauma just for anyone else. But we recognize that as people get more entrenched in their eating disorder, they tend to withdraw, right? If there's someone struggling with anorexia, they they tend to become more restrictive and isolated. Maybe they won't go out with friends or be seen. Oftentimes those struggling with bulimia and binge eating disorder often, right? Like I'd rather stay home and, and binge. I'd rather, I'm having a hard time putting an outfit together. I feel consumed by that. I'd rather stay home and isolate. And so most of the experiences that clients are struggling with when it comes to disordered eating and eating disorders is avoidance of the world and avoidance of connection. They, they so badly want to be seen, but they're so terrified of being seen, right? They want to show up as their whole selves, but they are deathly afraid of their whole self, right? The shame, the fear, um, the insecurities, like all of those pieces take them out of life and avoid interactions. And so specifically um, interpersonal process groups and the interpersonal relational work that we do helps clients connect. It helps clients bring themselves back into the world. How do I show up? Even if I'm feeling shame, maybe I can even say I feel shame, but I can also connect to someone else. How do I show up in a way that I can see someone else and they can then see me? So I think it's been actually it's like the crux of work when it comes to those struggling with eating disorders. I don't think you can probably heal in the way you need to without getting to some sort of relational work. Yeah. You mentioned the the groups and I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about this. Something that's becoming a lot more of your jam. I love this is the groups. My favorite is the interpersonal process group. And, uh, and people say process group or, or a group. Um, but what does it actually mean? What is an interpersonal process group? Absolutely. So ironically, I mean, when I got in, I started at Renfrew, my God, like 13 years ago, and I, they just throw you into groups and I just loved it. I mean, I like, I guess you all can tell, like I like to talk and I'm interactive and I use my hands a lot. And I mean, group work is just fascinating. And I didn't realize I was running kind of process groups. I just had a passion for it and loved bridging people and connecting people, never knowing what I was actually doing. And then transitioned to having groups outside and eventually got really involved with, um, 
the American Group Psychotherapy Association. Um, and in New York, when I was there, it's called the Eastern Group Psychotherapy Association and basically got trained in how to run groups, specifically interpersonal process groups. So that was a little behind of like how I got into this. So an interpersonal process group is not subject-based. There is no specific tool that you're going to walk in every week and like leave with. We're basically mirroring life. How do you show up in life? How do you, if you and myself and three other people were in the room, what would be my reaction to someone's experience? What would, how would I feel and how would I tolerate the emotions that arise when someone else shares an experience? How do I, how do I show up in conflict? Someone says something that I disagree with. Politics have been a big topic these days and that will surface. How do I show up in there having my experience around my beliefs and someone else allow my voice to be heard? have a voice, take up space, and then tolerate someone's different experience that I have a hard time with. So it's all about how we connect through relationships, but now we have multiple transferences. I discussed that earlier. Is all of our feelings towards all of these people in a room at one time for approximately an hour and a half every single week. <laughs> I mean, it's that, to me, it sounds amazing. I'm sure it sounds terrifying to some other people, but basically therapy on steroids. <laughs> therapy on steroids. There's actually been a, so much evidence-based treatment that group work actually for healing mental health and you know eating disorders, addiction, group work is like the primary modality and actually tends to help even more so than individual. Interesting. Yeah. I do remember that question on one of the exams, the licensing, licensing exams for some sort of treatment program. Yeah. There you go. There, there's evidence for that. But you're saying that when this is done in, if it was, let's say, group versus individual, this could potentially be a lot more powerful. But I'm assuming that for you, you would prefer to for the clients to be in individual therapy as well. Oh, of course. I mean, depending on our level of struggle, I definitely, they, I highly recommend individual and group also because so much of group is the microcosm. And then we go back to individual, which is another like sub microcosm. So much of what happens in group, we end up processing an individual. I have a handful of clients that are in individual with me and then in group. And so we'll talk about what came up or their reactions. And so there, yeah, so much of it gets processed in both. Yeah. Does it make it more complicated or less complicated to work with a client in group and an individual as opposed to having a separate therapist for individual? I, so originally I was trained, don't have anyone like in your individual that's in group. And then I like actually went to group training and they're like, of course you can have people in your group um, that are individual. It's, it's actually like both. There's some major benefit because like the clients that I work with, I know so deeply. And so oftentimes like there's certain nuances or challenges that I could probably help them see that others, I might not just because our connection isn't as rich, but also for me, it provides a lot of like value when there's clients that aren't my own, because I hear a lot of the same stories and the same struggles with my clients. Like they'll bring it up an individual and then they'll bring it up a group and then we'll have to talk about it again, an individual. And so I, it's nice when there's different energy from clients that aren't your own. Yeah, that's true. I know this might be a little difficult, but is it possible to give some sort of example of what an interpersonal process group would look like? Yeah, absolutely. And I can give you a great relational experience as well. So, so someone we have a I have a client and my I have a 
my group right now on Monday nights is beautiful. They're like seven connected, amazing women at the moment. It's open to men and women. <clears throat> unfortunately, it's it's not unfortunately, but it's always been women. Um, so I'm curious to see what would happen when we do end up getting a male in there. Um, but we have a client who I would say is more of like a leader in the group, but when she feels like she gets too emotional, she like fully shuts down. And so she kind of withdrew. And another client said to her, Hey, I, I'm noticing that you're like not as present. And she's like, well, I hate that people want to connect with me under around pain. I don't understand why, like the only way that like we connect is like through my emotional pain that sucks. And I don't want to be a part of it. And someone kind of, you know, said back to her, I mean, isn't that life? And you're honestly like you're the way that you got so aggressive about it makes me not want to connect with you. If you actually share the experience, I would want to connect with you. But while you're being aggressive, I actually want to run away from you. Right. So that was a really beautiful interpersonal moment where her behavior is indicative of everything that happens outside. And she brought it into the group and someone else said to her, like, okay, well, your exact behavior that you're doing is alienating me right now. And I want to connect with you and you won't let me. Yeah. The kind of interaction, if it would happen outside, none of this would go um, into a verbal conversation. It would just kind of be acted out and yeah. you'd lose all of it. Right. And I mean, if someone said that to me and got like aggressive with me, I would just like withdraw, but no one would know why. Right. If like it got kind of like dicey, um, depending on the situation, we would typically avoid it or, you know, shy away from it because a person is letting us know, hey, my defenses are up, like, don't go there. But in the group, she was able to say, like, what you're doing is like not allowing me to connect with you. Yeah, it sounds like a whole new set of rules in terms of interacting goes on in this group. So if somebody were to want to join, what are some things they need to know? (laughs) a great question. I get, um, even though I explain it all like in depthly in our like one to two consults that we do. And I'm like constantly saying these things, like it'll take six months and someone's like, Jill, you did not tell me that is like how the group works. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I told you like many times, but also I totally understand because this is my jam and this is new to you. So first no, Everyone is like terrified before they walk in because it's this like unknown of something, right? It's not a DBT group or a structured, you know, 12 week support group, right? It's an interpersonal group where you're, excuse me, entering in like truly not knowing, but hearing that it's going to help. You're like, how? So the main rules just for people to know, or we start on time, we end on time. Um, maintaining the structure and boundary of group is extremely healthy to like to mirror that for healing from anything. When we go over time or we break time boundaries, it leaves clients often feeling unsafe. And then the structure of the group doesn't form in the way you would want to. So we start on time, we end on time. If some, if like something has been opened up at 6.59, you know, I'm so glad you brought that in. We're going to talk about it next week. I'm going to honor the time boundary. I think maybe once in 12 years, I've gone over a group and there was like, someone was unsafe and we really needed to check in about it. Others are, there's no interaction outside of group. So different from many groups, the interactions all take place within the context of group. There's no group chats. There's no checking in outside. And people sometimes have a really hard time with this because they feel so connected to the people in the group. 
But again, to me, the integrity, the authenticity, the genuineness of the group, and we eliminate outside subgrouping. So if like two people were to talk, now they have a relationship that's a little bit on a hierarchy that the group doesn't have. So there's no just there's no interactions outside of group, which is very different from most groups because most support groups you can check in and like have relationships outside. The goal to say the first thought and feeling that comes to mind. That is literally what we say, like, please say the first thought and feeling that comes to mind. So those are the overarching kind of rules. Otherwise, there's no rules. Don't cross fire, but say whatever comes to mind. You can talk about food. You can talk about bodies. You can talk about whatever you want. There's none of those higher levels of care rules. Like you can talk about anything. Nothing's off limits. Yeah. So just when you mentioned higher level of care, in you're doing this outpatient. So how does it differ from any sort of higher level of care group? Yeah. So there's consistency, right? So like, I mean, it's an open group because anyone can join if availability exists, but you're committing to three months at a minimum. We kind of request six, but sometimes it feels a bit daunting for people. So we require three month commitment. You have to show up. Most people give you no absences. I give you one absence per like half a year that you're allowed to miss. Otherwise, you're you're being charged whether you show up or not. Um, uh, and there's an expectation that these eight people are showing up every single week. There's no drop-ins. No random person's going to leave. If someone isn't going to be there, they have to let the group know. Um, it's part of group norm is like is letting people know, hey, I can't make it. Um, And we go deeper, right? Like when you're in a higher level of care, you have people coming in and out all the time. And, you know, on Monday, someone could have told a really traumatic story. And then Tuesday, someone else comes in and has no idea what's going on. And like, oftentimes people didn't say, can you share that with me? Or I don't know, like it's, they're in a sicker place that they have a hard time asking for it. There is an expectation if someone misses or someone doesn't share that they're going to make, they will share it again. It might look different. We're allowed, they ask. Hey, I wasn't here last week and I really want to know what happened. Anything significant. That's a big part of finding their voices. So I'd say the continuity, the consistency, the expectation of these people showing up every week and not random people coming in and out. Yeah. Um, I think you had mentioned earlier a little bit about a role, like this person was the leader. I know there are some roles that come out. What are some dynamics that you see over and over again? Yeah. I mean, there's a typical scapegoat. Um, we have like the withdrawn quiet one. Um, we have, we always have the funny one, the the one who told jokes. <laughs> I, have, I have a few of those in my current group. And then you sort of have like a help rejecting complainer, right? So someone who's like wants help, but like, and then it's offered and then they like, don't like it. So, you know, you have typically those people, you get a lot of advice givers, you get a lot of question askers, they're like very specific group roles, but I'm kind of thinking of like to help people know what, more about what they are. Um, yeah. And then there's a lot of those like educate, like intellectual seekers, like, Hey, could you, I really would love to know a book that I could read or like, could you please tell me the manual like steps one through eight that like could help me with this. I had one for a while and she was, oh my gosh, she was such a, like an intellectual, like script seeker. And the group was like, will you please stop asking? It doesn't work like that. So yeah, I mean, the humor, the leader, there are always monopolizers, my group does not have a monopolizer right now at all. I did sit in on another group of my team and there were definitely monopolizers. And I was like, oh my gosh, guys. And they're like, 
complicated. Um, so yeah, those are kind of the, the gist of the roles. Yeah. Where does your role in the group come in? Such a great question. So it ebbs and flows. We kind of say that there's like, you know, you have beginning groups and then you'll have sort of, you know, they're not medium, but like somewhere in the middle groups and then more advanced groups. Um, so when the group starts out, um, I'm really active, right? I'm kind of like their infants and their babies and they need a lot of support. So I have to do a lot for them. I do a lot of bridging as in, Hey, you know, Jane, what was your reaction to Joe or, you know, Susie, when Joe was sharing what came up for you. So I have to ask, do a lot more question asking to like bridge. And I also do a lot of what we call subgrouping. Subgrouping is linking people that have some sort of similarity, right? Hey, Joe, Jane, Cindy, you guys have all mentioned struggling with your partners right now. Like what's it like to be in that experience together? You know, Mark, you're not really mentioning that. So what's it like for you to feel, I don't know, are you on the outside? Is there relief? So that would be subgrouping is linking people together. So they feel connected. Um, so I do a lot more work at the beginning. One of my associates told me that my group now is in like late middle school, early high school. <laughs> and so, yeah, I don't have to like do as much work. They're more independent. Um, they're more rebellious but they do more of the work. So I, I can sit back a little bit more and observe. And when I notice maybe things need to get like linked or connected, I obviously um, do that, but I'm way, I'm way more quiet because I don't have to literally like take care of them as much. Yeah. I love that analogy. It also sounds like to a certain extent, a lot of the stuff that comes up is thing are, are things that people wouldn't necessarily know about themselves and, you know, just then it's staring at the other people in the face and they bring it up and this person's like, what are you talking about? Like a hundred percent. We, I have one in, um, one of my groups now, she, she's a, she a rescuer or a fixer. And so she like would ask all these questions and the group was like, so we have, you're allowed to ask questions in group, but the way that the model I was trained by the wonderful Shara, um, fitness, she, we like weren't allowed to ask questions. And if we did, we always had to say the re the feeling behind the question. So that way it didn't always default away from us. We were still a part of the interaction, even if we were still being curious and wanting to know about the other person. And so no matter what, this girl was like question asking, question asking. Now I will tell you, her questions were really good. They weren't these like off the chain. They were so spot on and so valuable, but she would never share about herself. And the, the groups always know, like, I'm going to come back and ask you like, what was behind the question? So now they kind of do it for me as opposed to me having to do it. They're like, so-and-so like, you did not tell us your feeling just going to get mad or like whatever. It's like, great. But she realized what a caretaker she was. She's like, I never realized how much I want to fix and caretake. And obviously I've been doing it my whole life, but the question asking, so that interpersonal dynamic and the group kind of calling her out and saying like, you're not sharing yourself. Like you have never, you don't bring yourself in. You just ask this question, allowed her to be like, holy cow, this is what I'm doing. And that's a dynamic in my life. It's like, especially with intimate partners, she would end up in these relationships constantly caretaking and they wouldn't know anything about her. And she couldn't understand why, because she's like, I'm caring and I'm thoughtful and I'm showing up, but about them and never about her. So it was like really brilliant when she kind of connected, it was probably about a series of a month that it took. And then when she it's pretty short it, though, pretty short and like, yeah, exactly. Pretty short in the span of time, maybe it was six weeks, but like, yeah, she really, she took to it and yeah, it was like phenomenal to watch that. She was like, damn, 
Yep. <laughs> yeah. And so thinking about clients with eating disorders, this could be particularly helpful because a lot of the interpersonal dynamics, I mean, with everyone, but a lot of their interpersonal dynamics are so they're so blind to, and this can help them see so many of the things that are driving their behaviors. Correct. I mean, my particular group, so I have, I have two interpersonal groups right now. My practice actually has five. Um, the one specifically I was talking about that is a mixed eating disorder, interpersonal process group. So everyone is coming from disordered eating or eating disorder, some higher levels of care, some never been to higher levels of care. Right. So she recognized like, even when it came to the eating disorder, that she would make sure that like whatever food she ate was taking care of her mom, right? Like, am I eating something so that my mom won't say anything to me? So it was protective, but she was also doing it to like, make sure the mom felt okay about what she was eating. And then she recognized, I like have to stop doing this. So as you just said, they're like very intimately connected. Yeah. And I love that it also eliminates some of, I'm trying to think how to, how to say something that's coherent. A lot of times when we work through some things in individual, we're working toward either a goal or we're working through some sort of dynamic. And then it turns out that this dynamic in and of itself is defensive. And then we have to work through that. And this sort of eliminates all that, you know, complexity. Yeah. It, it eliminates it, but also it brings it to the forefront. And so like, yeah, eliminates not the right word. You're right. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like chaos or storm, a storm of like when it all comes out. Um, but also really helpful. I'm like, I don't know if I've ever had anyone tell me, they might say the group didn't feel like a right fit, but no one said, oh my gosh, I didn't get anything from this place. And like, it's not helping, you know, some, some find like the, the group, the, population at the time isn't the right fit, but yeah, that's about it. So if someone's listening to this and is like, oh yeah, I really have to do this. What are some of the steps that they can take to look for a group, to join a group? What does the process look like? Um, I mean, they can first ask if they, if they're in individual, right? Like definitely ask the therapist if they have any people that they connect with. I always think that, um, knowing someone is definitely better than just like sort of randomly finding on a listserv. Um, the AGPA, which the American Group Psychotherapy Association, AGPA, um, I think it's .org, they have a list of all the groups like throughout the country. It's not always as updated as we would like, but you can go on there and search for a group. And again, you can ask dietitians. I would ask even friends because oftentimes they're in groups and don't actually always know, you know, for someone like us, they it's on our website so they can, you know, email myself or any of the group leaders. And the first thing you would do is like have like a 10 minute kind of phone conversation to assess if this would be right. Um, and then we would schedule a consultation. We meet one to two times. Um, some people meet three. Um, I, I do a one to two, um, just depending on their finances and like their eagerness. A lot of times people are just like ready. And if we don't get them in, they're going to bail. So, um, I do often, I have a, I have two clients that I meet with who are not my individual, but I check in with about once a month because, they like just need a little more guidance in group. And so we check in. Yeah, I would say about once a month. Um, but yeah, I would say one to two sessions. We then let the group know that likely there's someone coming. Um, so depending on timing, that could be anywhere from like one to three weeks. And then they would start group. I mean, you make it sound pretty simple. <laughs> Overall, it is pretty simple. It's more anxiety provoking just like thinking about doing it. The actual process is pretty easy. Yeah. 
Um, and so coming at it from the other perspective, if let's say there's somebody listening who's a therapist and says, this has got to be something I incorporate into my practice. First of all, is that the kind of thing, is this the kind of thing that anybody can do? Or would you say to go through the training before you even embark on this journey? And even if they are a group therapist at this point, what does it take to set a group like this up? Yeah, I'm very much of like the mindset you have to be trained. I have a really hard time with like non-trained group therapists. Um, and partially because I think that harm sometimes is done because they don't know how to protect the group in like a meaningful way. Uh, so I'm in Atlanta now and there's a lot of what we call ANAD groups, which is anorexia and other disorders, but they're like drop-in groups. And I ran one for a, a period of time and I ran it interpersonally and they like hated it um, because I made them do work, which they didn't want to do. Yeah, but I, find, I know I find that if you don't know how to keep a group safe, and navigate, yeah, the level of, not illness, but like what interpersonal work is, then I often find that there there can be harm being done. I'm not a huge proponent of like drop-in groups, especially with eating disorders specifically, because we have no, someone could need to go to inpatient and someone could be completely an outpatient and we haven't assessed them and they're just going to show up and like be in this environment. And I think in order to do like really help healthy interpersonal work, like you have to be in a mindset to like show up. You can't be on meeting to go to inpatient or residential. So I say, look for what we call, oh my gosh, what are their names? Um, well, like in Atlanta, we have the Atlanta group psychotherapy association. So if you're listening, most cities have their own group, um, that you can get trained or get experience or show up and just learn more about groups and do webinars. We at AGPA, we have like year round webinars that you can join. Um, most I think are free just to like learn more about groups and group training and what that would look like concrete steps. Um, that's a little bit longer, but the abridged version is like set up a date, name your group, have a location, just like you would be doing for individual and then start marketing it. And then um, the likelihood it'll probably start later than you anticipate, because usually it takes a little while to people get on board. And I say, once you have three people, you do a group, two people are not a group, but three is. So even if you want seven, you start with three because a thousand times easier to add to your group than to start a group. Yeah. I mean, this kind of bleeds into something else I wanted to ask you about, because you do a whole bunch of coaching and supervision for therapists. Um, and we've been talking about the therapist client relationship or client client relationship, and we don't usually talk about therapist supervisor relationship. So just backtracking a little bit, first of all, what makes supervision so important for a therapist? My gosh, this field and this, this, the work can feel really lonely, right? Like, I mean, very different than like the eating disorder loneliness, but right. We spend all day, you know, currently on zoom, but like all, but like on zoom and like there were not, there's no people, right? Like we're at our homes, but even if we're in our offices, right. We spend all day taking care of other people often not interacting with anyone else, right. Where I'm, I'm doing an office build out and they're like, Oh, we have this huge you know, space. And I was like, yeah, lock it all up. Like put up rooms and soundproof it. And like, yeah, we no window, no, um, no glass. Like, you know, we're, we're kind of shut in, like hopefully we have windows because windows are needed, but it is, it can feel really isolating. And so, and oftentimes we're trained in what we're trained in, but we get a client who comes in, like I had a client who has pretty intense trichotillomania and I, that, that lands in a slightly more OCD realm. So I needed to get a little supervision and guidance on like, how do I like support that? I have a client who 
it's been a lot, but she just got diagnosed with DID. I had a sense of it for a while, but like, I'm not trained in DID. So I had to, I've had to do a lot of work. That's dissociative identity disorder. Thank you. Sorry. Dissociative identity disorder. She has different parts in her head and they, they come out. And so I feel like I'm an expert in eating disorders and I can hold that very close to my chest and that is fine but I needed to get more supervision around that. So it helps us not feel alone. It helps us know that we don't have to have the answers. I think there's definitely many of us, myself included, that we have a little bit of our own like egocentricness. Like we're going to go, we're going to help people, you know, like save the world. And sometimes we need to be brought back down that like, we don't know everything and it's absolutely okay. Right. Like we are allowed to not know everything. We're allowed to ask questions even 20 years into our careers we are allowed to still not know and ask questions and get feedback and to discuss the loneliness and our fears and our anxieties that come up. And that that's why I think supervision is so important. So I love supervision. It also allows me to access a different part of my brain. I think as clinicians, when we do, we're seeing similar clients like all day long. Yes, it helps us become more experts in that arena, but we're also doing the same thing all day long and we need to shift. And so when I get to supervise, a, my supervisees show up with like great questions and like they ask. And then when I do group supervision, there's so much collaboration. It's like so incredible to watch. Yeah. So it helps to not feel as alone. We get to access different parts of our mind. We get to feel, I mean, me personally, it's not like I feel smarter, but I'm like, not necessarily talking about like food and eating disorders all the time. I get to like explore other arenas and other dynamics, which feels really good to me. Um, so, and also, yeah, it gives us something new to do, which I think is also really important. And I love training new generation. Um, you're a, a by, you're kind of a byproduct of that too. That is um, true. Yeah. And so I think we need good clinicians and I hate when people kind of say, Oh, like, why are we training all these people? Like they're going to take clients from us. And I'm like, that is not true. That's BS. If like that's happening, you're not a good clinician. Um, there are unfortunately, unfortunately enough clients to go around. Everyone has different strengths and I want to help create like incredible clinicians. And like, I want that to be part of legacy feels extreme, but like part of like my journey in this therapeutic world is making sure that people are trained well and smartly and ethically and can make money. I like also firmly believe that's part of supervision is like, we are allowed to make money as therapists. We don't have to be martyrs. We don't have to like live like peasants. Like we are allowed to like charge a certain amount of money. We've worked really hard. We have lots of education that we're required to get that costs a lot of money. Like we are allowed to like be experts in our field and charge for that. And I'm, I am just, of that is like my belief above all. Yeah. And isn't it wild that for lawyers who may have the same sort of training or same amount of training that for them, it's expected to charge an arm and a leg. And for therapists, it's like, why do you charge so much? Yeah. Questioned all the time, right? You would never go to your doctor, you know, and say, Hey, can you like reduce that like fee for by a hundred dollars? Like nobody's, you're not going to go to your hairdresser and say, Hey, like, yeah, you're dying my hair and doing it. But like, could you give me 50% off? Like, it's weird. Like this is one of the only fields that like that happens. Now listen, the goal is that they're coming weekly. And so understandable that like a hairdresser or typical doctor's appointments, they're not as often. So I get that, but we're also literally saving most people's lives. 
and helping to change their lives, whether in a dramatic sense or just a real sense, like people choosing to like stay in their marriages or end up divorced or how to parent their kids. Like we're literally helping their lives grow. And sometimes I think that gets minimized. Yeah. And just before, in order not to have too many private jokes here, I want to plug Morgan. Morgan Somer was my former boss who is absolutely amazing how we got connected. So uh, Morgan has a practice in the city. She's awesome. But that's just, uh, you know, not to make sure we were sharing secrets here. <laughs> oh, yeah. more. So I Morgan was one of my associates and I like trained her and worked with her and she's phenomenal. And then went on her own and has this like incredible practice. And so I yes, that is she's wonderful. Yeah. Just going back to the supervision for a second, is there a way that you practice supervision that might be different than maybe other supervisors because of your relational background? Yeah. Um, so I'm like not a book person and I'm not a homework person. I'm not like, I'm not, if you haven't already picked that up people, (laughs) (laughs) I am just so about like being in the moment and like connecting. I'm like, I love that right now, like this, right. Like what's happening right now. And so someone actually asked me to supervise one of her associates. She's like, I would like you to like do an outline of like what each week would look like and what books you would recommend and what videos would you would recommend and like what homework you would provide. And I was like, I'm so sorry, but like, I am just not your person. Um, because yes, those things are so important. And I have an intern and I gave her a laundry list of books to read. Like that's different, right? She's like just learning and needs education. And I'm not saying books aren't so crucial because they are. And but our work is in the room, even with supervisees, right? Like what's one of my supervisees literally said to me, when we're in group supervision, I get stuck in my head and I'm not sure what to say. And I feel like everyone else is kind of surpassing me and and I get really stuck. And I want to talk more about that. Like how beautifully relational, right? I was like, well, you know what? Your clients are going to feel that in group too. And she was like, oh my gosh, you're right. And so like, and I was like, and what's happening there is the fear of saying it wrong? You know, are you just don't know? Is it just taking a while to process? Like we really explore what that is. And she's like, no, of course, all of those things, like everyone else seems smarter than me sometimes. And like, I don't know if like I have the right answer or like, if my gut is correct. And so a total parallel process to what our clients think. And we explore that. We look at the feelings, the emotions, the thoughts, the anxieties as it relates to our clients and as it relates to work. And so we're not just like, hey, you're feeling anxious. Like, here's how to be a therapist book. We're talking about it. So then when she shows up, she's recognizing, okay, this is what's happening for me. I'm recognizing the like somatic experience that goes on in my body. I'm I'm walking through it in my head. I'm going to be present and acknowledge it because we've talked and explored it and and had a meaningful conversation around it. So yeah, I do supervision very differently. Yeah. And I love this way that you approach supervision and therapy and group therapy, because it usually gives so much room to the place where people feel like they haven't been seen just yet when they're kind of put into a box. If somebody is just treating them as a diagnosis or a little bit more behaviorally. And so this gives us the opportunity to actually look at them holistically, every single part of them. All parts. Exactly. That was a good statement. Holistically. Yep. Yeah. Well, listen, Jill, we can talk about this forever and, um, (laughs) Just in the interest of time, we're going to wrap up. But thank you so much for taking the time. Before I let you go, can you just let our listeners listeners know where they can find you? Sure. So our website is jlewistherapy.com. J-L-E-W-I-S-T-H-E-R-A-P-Y.com, as it sounds. You can always email me at jill at jlewistherapy.com. But I would say the website provides 
a whole host of information. Uh, hopefully it doesn't feel overwhelming because there is a lot of information there. Um, and if you have any questions or just want to reach out or like, can you share more? Like I'm always up for that. So feel free to reach out at any point. Yeah. So just to clarify, you have a couple of associates. So you do individual, you do group. What else do you do? Uh, family couples. And I have a new clinician who just came on and we're starting play therapy. Um, oh, wow. So that's for yeah. the kiddos. For the kiddos. We've noticed like eating disorders and just so we're getting a lot of referrals younger and younger. And we do, as I said, talk therapy and relational work and they're not quite ready for it. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. So I just brought on an incredible associate, Brian, who is now, I'm excited to have a, a man on staff um, who's going to do play therapy. Yeah. And also you mentioned that you're yeah, in Atlanta, but your associates are in which states? Because they're more than no, Georgia. No, all my, so all my associates, everyone's in Atlanta. Our home base is Atlanta, but three of us are licensed in New York. And okay. so if we get, we have a handful of New York clients. Um, we have a couple of them in our groups and everything too. So as long as we assess that the New York client is safe enough to do continued telehealth, and they also have a team around them, then we would happily do that. That's a pretty good resource. Yeah. And I don't have to pay for New York city office space anymore. Hallelujah. Oh my God. Yes. You're a rich girl. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. That was a lot. Um, Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so appreciative. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right. Talk next time.